0: Time passed quickly enough, and by half past seven, the brakes were loaded up again, and a start was made for the return journey. They called at all the taverns on the road, and by the time they reached the Blue Lion, half of them were three sheets to the wind, and five or six were very drunk, including the driver of Crass's brake and the man with the bugle. The latter was so far gone that they had to let him down, and lie down at the bottom of the carriage amongst their feet where he fell fast asleep, while the others amused themselves by blowing weird shrieks out of a horn. There was an automatic penny-in-the-slot piano with the Blue Lion, and, as that was the very last house on the road, they made a rather long stop there, playing hooks-and-rings and charatly and and drinking and singing and dancing, and finally quarrelling. Several of them seemed disposed to quarrel with Newman. All sorts of offensive remarks were made at him in his hearing. Once, somebody ostensibly knocked his glass of lemonade over, and a little later someone else collided violently with him, just as he was in the act of drinking, causing his lemonade to spill all over his clothes. The worst of it was that most of these rowdy ones were his fellow passengers in Crass's brake, and there was not much chance of getting a seat in either of the other carriages, for they were overcrowded already. From the remarks he overheard, from time to time, Newman guessed the reason for their hostility, and, as their manner towards him grew more menacing, he became, well, so nervous that he began to think quietly of sneaking off and walking the remainder of the way home by himself, unless he could get someone in one of the other brakes to change seats with him. While these thoughts were agitating his mind... Dick Wantley suddenly shouted out that he was going to go for the dirty tyke who had off to work under price last winter. It was his fault that they were all working for sixpence halfpenny, and he was going to wipe the floor with him. Some of his friends eagerly offered to assist, but others interposed, and for a time it looked as if there was going to be a free fight, the aggressors struggling hard to get at their inoffensive victim. Eventually, however, Newman found a seat in misery's brake, squatting on the floor with his back to the horses, thankfully enough to be out of reach of the drunken savages, who were now roaring out ribald songs and startling the countryside as they drove along with unearthly blasts on the coach horn. Meantime, although none of them seemed to notice it, the brake was travelling at a furious rate, and it swayed about from side to side in a very erratic manner. It should have been the last carriage, but, well, things had got a bit mixed up at the blue line. Instead of bringing up the rear of the procession, it was now second, and just behind the small vehicle containing Rushton and his friends. Crass several times reminded them that the other carriage was so near that Rushton must be able to hear every word that was said, and these repeated admonitions at length enraged the semi-drunk, who shouted out, that they didn't care a bugger, if they could hear. Who the bloody hell was he anyway? Yeah, to hell with him. Damn Rushton and you too, cried Bill Bates, addressing grass. You're only a dirty tow-rag, that's all you are. Just a dirty tow-rag, a bloody rotter. That's the only reason you get put in charge of jobs, because you're a good nigger driver. You are a bloody sight worse than Rushton or misery either. "'Who was it started the one-man-one-room-dodge, eh? "'Why, it was you, you bleeder!' "'Knock him off his bleeding perch!' suggested Bundy. Everyone seemed to think it was a very good idea, but when the semi-drunk attempted to rise for the purpose of carrying it out, he was thrown down by a sudden lurch of the carriage on the top of the prostrate figure of the bugle-man, and by the time the others had assisted him back to his seat, well, they'd forgotten all about their plan of getting rid of Crass.' Meantime, the speed of the vehicle had increased to a fearful rate. Rushton and the other occupants of the little waggonette in front had been for some time shouting to them to moderate the pace of their horses, but as the driver of Crass's brake was too drunk to understand what they said, well, he took no notice, and they had no alternative but to increase their own speed to avoid being run down. The drunken driver now began to imagine that they were trying to race him, and became fired up with a determination to pass them. And it was a very narrow road. but There was just about room to do it, and he had sufficient confidence in his own skill with the ribbons to believe that he could get past in safety. The terrified gesticulations and shouts of Rushton's party only served to infuriate him because he imagined that they were jeering at him for not being able to overtake them. He stood up on the footboard, and he lashed his horses till they almost flew over the ground, while the carriage swayed and skidded in a very fearful manner. In front, the horses of Rushton's conveyance were also galloping at top speed. The vehicle bounding and reeling from one side of the road to the other, while his terrified occupants, whose faces were blanched with apprehension, sat clinging to their seats and to each other, their eyes projecting from their sockets as they gazed back with terror at their pursuers, some of whom were encouraging the drunken driver with promises of quarts of beer, and urging on the horses with curses and yells. Crass's fat face was pallid with fear, he clung trembling to his seat. Another man, very drunk and oblivious to everything, was leaning over the side of the brake, spewing into the road, while the remainder, taking no interest at the race, amused themselves by singing, conducted by the semi-drunk, as loud as they could roar. Has anyone seen a German band, a German band, a German band? I've been looking about, pom, 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 pom. I've searched every pub, both far and near, near and far, near and far. I want my Fritz, will plays, tiddly bits on the old big trombone. Yeah, the other two brakes had fallen far behind. And one presided over by Hunter, contained a mournful crew. Nimrod himself, from the effects of numerous drinks of ginger beer with secret dashes of gin in it, had become at length crying drunk, and he sat weeping in a gloomy silence beside the driver, a picture of lachrymose misery. But dimly conscious of his surroundings, and Slime, who rode with Hunter because he was a fellow member of the Shining Light Chapel. And then there was another paper-hanger, an unhappy wretch who had afflicted with religious mania, everyone around him. And he'd brought a lot of tracts with him, and he'd distributed to the other men and to the villagers of Tubberton and to, well, anyone else who would take them. Most of the other men who rode in Nimrod's break were of the religious working-man type. Ignorant, shallow-pated dolts, without as much intellectuality as an average cat. Attendants at various PSAs and church mission halls, who went every Sunday afternoon to be lectured on their duty to their betters, and to have their minds, save the mark, addled and stultified by such persons as Rushton, Sweater, Diddleman and Grinder, not to mention such mental specialists as the Holy Reverend Belchers and Boschers, and such persons as John Starr. At these meetings none of the respectable working men were allowed to ask any questions, or to object to, or find fault with, anything that was said, or to argue, or discuss, or criticise. They had to sit there, like a lot of children, while they were lectured at, and preached, and, and patronised. Even as sheep before their shearers are dumb, so they were not permitted to open their mouths. And for that matter, they didn't wish to be allowed to ask any questions anyway, or to discuss anything. They would not have been able to. They sat there and listened to what was said, but they had a very hazy conception of just what it was all about. Most of them belonged to these PSAs merely for the sake of the loaves and the fishes. Every now and then they were rewarded with prizes, Self-Help by Smiles and other books suitable for perusal by persons suffering from almost complete obliteration of the mental faculties. Besides other benefits, there was usually a Christmas club attached to the PSA or mission, and the things were sold to the members, just slightly below cost, as a reward for their civility. There were there, for the most part, broken-spirited poor wretches who contentedly resigned themselves to a life of miserable toil and poverty, and with a callous indifference, abandon their offspring to the same fate. Compared with such as these, the savages of New Guinea or the Red Indians are immensely higher in the scale of manhood. They are at least free. They call no man master, and if they don't enjoy the benefits of science and civilization, well, neither do they toil to create those things for the benefit of others. As for their children, most of those savages would rather knock them on the head with a tomahawk and allow them to grow up to be half-starved drudges for other men. But these were not free. Their servile lives were spent in grovelling and cringing and toiling and running about like little dogs at the behest of their numerous masters. As for the benefits of science and civilization, well, their only share was to work and help to make them and then to watch other men enjoy them. And all the time they were tame and quiet and content, and they said, Yeah, well, the likes of us can't expect to have nothing better. As for our children, what's been good enough for us? Well, it's going to be good enough for the likes of them, ain't it? But although they were so religious and respectable, and so contented to be robbed on a large scale, yet, in small matters, in the commonplace of the petty affairs of their everyday existence, none of these men was acutely alive to what their enfeebled minds conceived to be their own selfish interests, and they possessed a large share of that singular cunning which characterised this form of dementia. That was why they had chosen to ride in Nimrod's brake, because they wished to chum up with him as much as possible in order to increase their chances of being kept on in preference to others who were, maybe not quite so, respectable. Some of these poor creatures had very large heads, but a close examination would have shown you that the size was due to the extraordinary thickness of the bones. The cavity of the skull was not actually so large as the outward appearance of the head would have led the casual observer to suppose. And even in those instances where the brain was a fair size, it was of inferior quality, being coarse in texture and to a great extent, composed of fat. Although most of them were regularly attending at some place of so-called worship, they were not all teetotalers, and some of them were now in the different stages of intoxication, not because they had a great deal to drink, but because, being usually abstemious, it didn't take very much to make them drunk. From time to time this miserable crew tried to enliven the journey by singing, but as most of them only knew a few old choruses, well, it didn't come to much. As for the few who did happen to know all the words of a song, they either had no voice or were not inclined to sing. And the most successful contribution that that religious maniac who sang several hymns, the choruses being joined in by everybody, both drunk and sober. The strains of these hymns wafted back through the balmy air to the last coach and they were the cause of much hilarity to the occupants, who also sang the choruses. As they had all been brought up under Christian influences and educated in Christian schools, well, they all knew the words. "'Work, for the night is coming! Turn, poor sinner, and escape the eternal fire! Pull for the shore! And where is my wandering boy?' The last reminded Harlow of a song that he knew nearly all the words of. Take the news to mother, the singing of which was much appreciated by all present, and when it was finished they sang it all over again. Philpot being so affected he actually shed tears. And Easton confided to Owen that there was no getting away from the fact that a boy's best friend is his mother. In the last carriage, as in the other two, there were several men who were more or less intoxicated, and for the same reasons. But not because being used to taking much liquor. The few extra glasses they'd drunk had got into their heads. They were sober, as a lot of fellows needed to be at ordinary times, and they'd flocked together in the break because, well, they were all of them about the same character. Not tame, contented imbeciles, like most of them in misery's carriage, but men something like Harlow, who, although dissatisfied with their condition, doggedly continued the hopeless, weary struggle against their fate. They were not teetotalers, and they never went to either church or chapel, but they spent little in drink or in any form of enjoyment, maybe an occasional glass of beer, or a still rarer visit to the music hall, and now and then an outing more or less similar to this being the sum total of all of their pleasures. These four breaks might fitly be regarded as so many travelling lunatic asylums, the inmates of each exhibiting different degrees and forms of mental disorder. The occupants of the first, Rushton, Didlum, and Co., might be classed as criminal lunatics, who injured others as well as themselves. In a properly constituted system of society, well, such men as these would be regarded as a danger to the community, and they'd be placed under such special restraint as would effectually prevent them from harming themselves or others. These wretches had abandoned every thought and thing that tends to the elevation of humanity. They'd given up on everything that makes life good and beautiful, just in order to carry on a mad struggle to acquire money, which they would never be sufficiently cultured or evil to properly enjoy. Deaf and blind to every other consideration to this end, they had degraded their intellects by concentrating them upon the minutest details of expense and profit, and for them, their reward were raked in from their harvest of muck and lucre, along with the hated curses of those they injured in the process. They knew that the money they accumulated was foul with the sweat of other their brother-men, and wet with the tears of little children, but, well, they were just deaf and blind and callous to the consequences of their greed. Devoid of every enabling thought or aspiration, they just grovelled on the filthy ground, tearing up the flowers to get at the worms. In the coach presided over by Crass, Bill Bates, the semi drunkard the other two or three habitual boozers were all men who had been driven mad by their environment. At one time, most of them had been fellows like Harlow, working late and early, whenever they got the chance, only to see their earnings swallowed up by a few minutes every Saturday by the landlord and all the other hosts of harpies and profit mongers, and there who were waiting to demand it as soon as it was earned. In the years that were gone, Most of these men used to take all their money home religiously every Saturday and give it to the old girl, just for the house, and then, lo and behold, in a moment, yea, even in the twinkling of an eye, it was all gone, melted away like snow in the sun, and nothing to show for it except an insufficiency of the bare necessities of life. But after a time they'd become heartbroken and sick, and just tired of that sort of thing. They hankered after, well, a little pleasure, a little excitement, a little fun, and they found that it was possible to buy something like those in quart pots in the pub. They knew that they were not the genuine article, but they were better than nothing at all. And so they gave up the practice of giving all their money to the old girl and gave it to the landlord and other harpies who bought beer with some of it instead. And after a time... Well, their minds became so disordered from drinking so much beer that they cared, well, nothing, whether the rent was paid or not. They cared but little about the old girl either, and the children, whether they had food or clothes. They said, well, deal with everything, and everyone. And they cared for nothing so long as they could get plenty of beer. The occupants of Nimrod's coach had already been described, and most of them have may correctly be described, classed as being similar to cretin idiots of the third degree, very cunning and selfish, and able to read and write, but with very little understanding of what were they read except on the most common topics. As for those who rode with Harlow in the last coach, most of them had already been intimated were men of similar character to himself. The greater number of them were fairly good workmen, and unlike the boozers in Crass's coach, not yet quite heartbroken, but still continuing the hopeless struggle against poverty. These differed from Nimrod's lot inasmuch as they were not content. They were always complaining of their wretched circumstances, and they found a certain kind of pleasure in listening to tirades of the socialists against the existing social conditions, and professing their concurrence with many of the sentiments expressed, and a desire of bringing about a better state of affairs. Most of them appeared to be quite sane, being able to converse quite intelligently on any ordinary topic without discovering any symptoms of mental disorder. And it was not until the topic of parliamentary elections was mentioned that evidence of their insanity was forthcoming. And it then almost invariably appeared that they were subject to the most extraordinary hallucinations and extravagant delusions. The commonest being that the best thing that the working men could do to bring about an improvement in their condition was to continue to elect their liberal and Tory employers to make laws for and to rule over them. At such times, if anyone ventured to point out to them that uh, that was what they'd been doing all their lives and referred them to the manifold evidences that met them whenever they turned their eyes to its folly and futility, well, they were generally immediately seized with the paroxysm of the most furious mania and were, with difficulty, prevented from savagely assaulting those who differed from them. They were usually found in a similar condition of manical excitement for some time preceding and during a parliamentary election. But afterwards, they usually manifested that modification of insanity which is called melancholia. In fact, they alternated between these two forms of the disease. During elections, the highest state of exalted mania and at ordinary times, presumably as a result of reading about the proceedings in Parliament of the persons whom they'd elected, in a state of melancholic depression. And in their case, an instance of hope deferred, making the heart sick. This condition occasionally proved to be the stage of transition into yet another modification of the disease, that known as dipsomania. The phrase exhibited by Bill Bates and the semi-drunk. And yet another form of insanity was that shown by the socialists. Like most of their fellow passengers in the last coach, the majority of these individuals appeared to be of perfectly sound mind. Upon entering into conversation with them, well, one found that they reasoned correctly, even brilliantly. They divided their favourite subject into three parts. First an exact definition of the condition known as poverty, secondly, a knowledge of the causes of poverty, and thirdly, a rational plan for the cure of poverty. And those who are opposed to them always failed to refute their arguments and feared, and nearly always refused, to meet them in a fair fight, in open debate preferring to use the cowardly and despicable weapons of slander and misrepresentation. The fact that these socialists never encountered their opponents except to defeat them was a powerful testimony to their accuracy of the reasoning that they used and the correctness of their conclusions. And yet, they too were undoubtedly mad. One might converse with them for an indefinite time on the three divisions of their subject without eliciting any proofs of insanity. But, directly one inquired what means they proposed to employ in order to bring about the adoption of their plan, they replied that they hoped to do so by reasoning with others. Well, although they had sense enough to understand The real causes of poverty, and the only cure for poverty, they were, nevertheless, so foolish that they entertained the delusion that it is possible to reason with demented persons. Whereas every sane person knows that to reason with a maniac, well that's not only fruitless, but rather it tends to fix more deeply the erroneous impressions of his disordered mind. The wagonette containing Rushton and his friends continued to fly over the road, pursued by one in which rode Crass, Bill Bates and the semi-drunk. But notwithstanding all the efforts of the drunken driver, they were unable to overtake or pass the smaller vehicle, and when they reached the foot of the hill that led up Windley, the distance between the two carriages rapidly increased, and the race was reluctantly abandoned. When they reached the top of the hill... Rushton and his friends didn't wait for the others, but drove off towards Mugsborough as fast as they could. Crass's Bake was the next to arrive at the summit, and they halted there to wait for the other two conveyances. And when they came up, all those who lived nearby got out, and some of them sang, "'God save the King!' and then the shouts of, "'Good night!' and cries of, "'Don't forget six o'clock Monday morning!' They dispersed to their homes, and the carriages moved off once more. At intervals, as they passed through Windley, brief stoppages were made in order to enable others to get out, and by the time they reached the top of the long incline that led towards Mugsborough, it was nearly twelve o'clock, and the brakes were almost empty, and the only passengers left being Owen and four or five others who lived town. By ones and twos, these also departed, disappearing into the obscurity of the night, until there was none left, and the bino was just an event of the past. <laughs>